0: This week, Richard elaborates on the concept of harlotry in the Book of the Twelve, explaining how this metaphor is used to highlight the disloyalty and ingratitude of God's people, and how Israel turns their back on the Lord's generosity, repeatedly seeking self-justification and security from others. In this way, Israel insults God not only to their own detriment, but at the expense of those in need. This week's episode concludes with a special tribute to Metropolitan Philip Saliba, who fell asleep in the Lord on March nineteenth, two 2014. The President of Lebanon once referred to Metropolitan Philip as the fearless voice of the Arabs. This moniker was most evident in his fatherly and ecumenical role for the American Church, which has struggled to bring the teaching of God, our Father, to a society bereft of fathers. He will be missed. You're listening to the Bible, as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to the 10th episode of the Bible is Literature Podcast. It's a milestone episode for us and an opportunity to take a step back again and look at some of the work that we're doing in biblical studies. And today we thought it'd be interesting to talk to Richard about a book that he's working on, on the Book of the Twelve, which is most commonly referred to as the Minor Prophets. Right. So, Richard, we've dealt with different topics from your study notes from your book. We've talked mm-hmm. about sacrifice and functionality. Right. We've talked about the implications of the pierced one in Zechariah and how historically it's been misread because it's been taken outside the context of the Book of the 12 uh-huh. But you've also been reflecting a lot lately on the question of harlotry, which is obviously it's a, an extremely important metaphor in the prophetic mm-hmm. tradition. Tell us something about uh, harlotry in the Book of the Twelve and, and what's interesting or unique about its function mm-hmm. in that specific context.
1: Right. So I've mentioned this metaphor before of the relationship between Israel and God is a relationship of husband and wife. Right. And so the idea of loyalty is not fealty like to a king, but it's loyalty like a husband to a wife, and that most personal relationship. You know, that's the interesting thing about that image. And harlotry is where the woman goes and tries to find another husband. In the metaphorical sense, this means Israel going and looking for other gods. And when they do this, it's because they're worried. They're worried about not having enough. In Hosea, we have discussion about harlotry, and then we have At the very end of the Book of the Twelve, in Malachi, we have discussion about harlotry again. It's mentioned a couple times briefly, but it struck me when I saw it as a big theme in the first book and a big theme in the last book of the Book of the Twelve, because I've noticed some of these bookends in the book. In Hosea, what it is, is I gave you all these wonderful things. I made you beautiful, but then what would you use your beauty for? You used your beauty to go and find other boyfriends. If I could interject here, Richard, it's probably important for our
0: listeners to understand a little bit of the social context. I think today, when we think about economic stability... We think either about rugged individualism, where people are responsible to go out and get a job and take care of themselves, right? or we think about government services. Those are the two ideological poles in Western culture. I think it's extremely important that we understand that in the ancient Near East, neither of those ideological poles were a possibility. So the institution of the family, the institution of the father in the ancient Near East was a social economic safety net. Right. So this isn't about sexuality or the family in the modern sense that we understand in mm-hmm. the West. This is about the father being the one who actually has the responsibility of providing economically for those who he takes into
1: his household. Right, exactly. Just as a background for the betrayal that's taking place. Right, and that's good. I'm glad you mentioned that, Father, because you know the, the complexity... I, I love the metaphor of the husband and of harlotry... Because it brings in all these complicated aspects of husband and wife and providing for one for the other and taking care one for the other and living with one another and getting along with one another and absolute loyalty to one another. All these things get packed in when you use this metaphor of the marriage. I think this is why reading Ephesians 5 is significant if we're really listening at the wedding service, you know. But. What's interesting is at the end of the Book of the Twelve in Malachi, the people have sinned. And how did they sin? They sinned because they sacrifice rather than sacrifice the best of their flock, they always sacrifice the weakest, the ones who are about ready to either die or get eaten by a wolf, or I don't know what they're afraid of. But if they weren't able to walk or if they were blind or something, those would be the ones that they would sacrifice. And he calls them harlots. And the people literally in the book, they're like, what did we do? How are we not loyal to you? And what it happens is that Why do you give the weak instead of the strong? It's because it's going to die anyway, so it's already a loss, so we can just write it off. Whereas the strong one, especially if you're thinking as a shepherd, the strong is the one who then is able to impregnate the females, and you have a stronger flock, and it actually raises your capital. It raises the value of your flock if you keep the strongest. The reason why they weren't giving up the strongest ones, the healthiest ones, is because they needed them for the economic success of their flock. But if we think back in Hosea, why did Israel have any kind of economic success? Why did they have oil to put on their face? And if you reread uh, Hosea 2, because the Lord provided for them. So here's the contradiction. Are you putting your faith in the sheep Or are you putting your faith in the one who gave you the sheep? And this is how they were becoming disloyal. They were harlots to the God of the sheep, Hmm. so to speak, the ones who made the sheep fertile, whoever that was, instead of putting their faith in the God who gave them sheep, who gave them any possibility for life. And so because they turned away... This is what was harlotry, and this is a huge challenge to the human being. Jesus says, give up everything, sell everything, and give everything to the poor. Everyone's like, well, that's hyperbole. Jesus didn't actually expect anybody to really do that, you know. But it says to do it. Alright, and I've never seen the clause that he didn't really mean it. I've
0: never. I've, I've searched scripture now for many years. I still haven't found the secret passage that says all that stuff Jesus said. He was kidding. He was kidding, right. <laughs> he, he,
1: he said it, but, you know, he was just trying to get a
0: rise what out of What he really
1: it. meant was, follow our denomination nation and put money in our tray. Right. Yeah. And he was just getting a rise out of Peter when he said he was going to go and get crucified. And and Peter's like, well, we know you're just exaggerating about the crucifixion. Right. And then he called him Satan. So we know like what happens. Right. So so that's the stumbling block that, that we create for ourselves. So what he's saying is he's really challenging the human being to say, you don't put your... I mean, this is the thing. You know, uh, uh, in churches, we get all bent out of shape. Do you give ten percent? Do you not give ten percent? Do you charge dues? Do you not charge dues? And there's this whole thing. The whole discussion is self righteousness. It's very self righteous. But there's there's an underlying fear of scarcity. Of course, that we might not have enough. And worrying about scarcity is an insult to God because first of all. If you have abundance, it's because God gave it to you. If you have scarcity, it's because God took it away from you. Either way, you owe what you have to the Lord. Right, and it's a double
0: hit. I mentioned self-righteousness because the reason people want to draw a line is because they want to mitigate their fear of scarcity, but still be good with God. So if they can make a rule that you give X, then they can finally sit back and say... I can feel okay that I didn't stop to talk to the homeless man and take a dollar out of my pocket because I already gave my 10.2% which is you know theologically correct right, theologically or whatever correct,
1: right well I mean that's the thing it's funny because the people they don't just say ah, forget sacrifice it's too costly they're like well we'll sacrifice but we'll compromise it's the lukewarmness of it, you exactly, know? Like, this, exactly. is a, this is a problem. And you're right about the self-justification, you know? There's a self-righteousness and self-justification. It's like, this is still okay. But what the Lord says in Malachi, it's beautiful. I it's, it's a short book. If anyone's listening, if it's just three chapters. You should read it. Because it's funny, because he literally says, if you're not going to teach the correct things, you might as well shut the doors of the temple and put out the fire on the altar. Basically, what he's saying is, shut off the lights, Lock the doors, don't even bother. Like, it's the most explicit thing I've ever seen in the Bible where it says, like, if you're not going to do it correct, you might as well just shut down and go do something else.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of Paul's beautiful passage on love because although he takes a different literary approach to expressing this concept, he's essentially saying, look, if it's not about taking care of each other and serving other people, And submitting to one another, then the whole thing is empty. It's a waste of time. It's a beautiful prophetic message that brings clarity, especially in institutional settings where. The position of the candle holder, the way you carried the cross last week in the service, the way this committee does this every year suddenly becomes more important than the people on the committee, or the people the cross is supposed to prompt you to take care of. Mm-hmm. You know, it's People get lost. Right. They get lost. It's love or it's nothing. It's absolutely critical right. in terms of biblical
1: preaching and ministry. In the communist revolution in Russia, there was a huge controversy the communists were accusing the church of not helping the poor. Why? Because their churches were filled with gold and there were peasants who were starving. Absolutely. And this was a huge controversy. Do you give it up? Do you not give it up? Because these are holy items, but if the poor are starved, then is it okay? And this was the dilemma that they that the church had to deal with. But why was the church in this dilemma? Because their churches were filled with gold. If their chalice was made out of clay and if their icons were egg tempura on wood, there would not be this problem. Well, of course. I mean, it's clear
0: in Scripture. And it's clear in the writing of the great Antiochian scriptural exegete, John Chrysostom, that there's really no place for gold and wealth in a church setting. Right. And and if it's there, it's there to be given away. And it's a pretty difficult tension in any institutional setting, because it's not just about precious metals. Right. It's about all of the capital and energy we invest in things that don't matter. Right. And this is the thing, you can walk into a church that is bare and has this stoic aesthetic, where there's maybe one crucifix in the building and it's very modest, But you still have to look at where the community's priorities are to assess whether or not there's wealth that's being squandered internally. So so gold even becomes a metaphor for a deeper problem.
1: Well, in Haggai, Haggai goes the other way. The Lord says, why didn't you build my temple? It's the only place where the Lord gets upset with the people for not building the temple. But it proves the question of functionality, because Because, it's not good or bad to do anything. It's how it functions in a particular setting. Exactly. It's the function, because what's the problem? Well, you're spending all this money to build up your houses, and your houses are beautiful, and your vineyards are beautiful, and stuff, but my house remains in ruins. This is exactly, this is
0: exactly relevant to the American setting. I'm so Uh glad you bring this example from Haggai, because very often in an American setting, the ones that are the most critical of the expenditures of the liturgical community are the ones who live in palaces. Right. Right, so they're tight under the premise of not wanting to have gold chalices for the church, but then they live in a
1: hacienda. Yeah, they, they so, eat and drink out of gold chalices Right. <laughs> so, So, you
0: know, is it the temple of your glory in the middle of the community with a cross on it, or is it the temple of your glory in the suburbs? Mm-hmm. It's functionally right. the same temple that God is trying to destroy. Well,
1: and then Haggai, he just, you know, in Haggai, the Lord just makes sure that people don't get off track because he says, this temple isn't going to be as impressive as the earlier one, <laughs> but I will dwell there <laughs> and because I dwell there, that's what's going to be impressive about it. Right. So we're, we're back to the fundamental principle of the prophetic movement that the temple
0: of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as Jeremiah says three right. times, is, as Joshua
1: says, wherever his teaching is adhered to and kept and preached and lived. Exactly. And that's what happened in, in Zechariah then. Haggai and Zechariah begin to establish the eschaton and what the eschaton is really going to look like. And the nations are going to beg literally, to come to Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord is there. But how they know the Lord is there is because people there live according to Torah and treat each other well. It's very interesting. If you read Zechariah, when it boils down the Torah, it's like, be just with each other. Don't lie to each other. Absolutely. Like that's, it it really is, for for someone who wants the Christian to be something something more and more impressive than someone who treats other people well, it's amazing how this idea pops up again and again and again in the book of the 12. Towards God, you have to be loyal. To everybody else, you have to be kind and honest and just. Chesed and tzedek are the words, you know, loving kindness and righteousness are the words that you use towards other people. That's it. You know, this gives us an opportunity to take a little segue at the end of today's episode
0: to talk about very sad news in the Eastern Orthodox community in North Mm -hmm. America. And that is the news we received this week that his eminence, Metropolitan Philip Saliba, passed away. You know, Metropolitan Philip was a major figure in world Orthodox Christianity for more than 50 years. He served the Antiochian Archdiocese in North America for 50 years as a pastor and a shepherd who emphasized very much, as a true Antiochian, as someone from the Antiochian tradition, emphasized the practical dimension of Scripture and the importance of taking care of family, taking care of community, looking after the needs of the next generation, serving, not by spoiling them with material affluence, but by focusing on education and setting up a framework to sustain education Mm -hmm. into the future. So I think your comment about the practical implications in terms of how we treat the neighbor being so essential to Scripture. I thought it was a perfect opportunity to just honor the memory of Metropolitan
1: Philip. Allah I, um What I appreciated about him is the Antiochian Archdiocese has a lot of challenges in integrating Arabs and non-Arabs, and I think this was a challenge that exists for Arabs and non-Arabs in American society. Absolutely. And so I think that he was uh, forward-thinking in bringing them together in the church and trying to guide people through the kind of natural tension that arises when you have different cultural worldviews coming together. But bringing them together in the church, I think, was something that is still rocky and it's still difficult and there's still racism on both sides. Of course. But I think that bringing them together is the only way you're ever going to have any kind of resolution. Well, I'll
0: never forget. I'll never forget the stories I would hear as a child about my grandfather, who was an Orthodox priest from the Middle East, from Palestine, who, in terms of his attire, was dressed very much like the typical classic Orthodox priest, the hat, the beard, and so forth. And when he came to the United States, his uh, bishop, Metropolitan Bashir at the time, asked him to shave his beard and to take off his cassock and to wear a suit, because in the United States, people dress this way. And if we're going to minister to the folks in this land... We need to be able to not set ourselves apart self-righteously, right. but blend in so that we can be among them and really love them. And I think Metropolitan Philip was a steward of that teaching and really tried to safeguard that tradition, that Antiochian tradition of practicality. Yeah. And it's always, for me, heartwarming to see Antiochian hierarchs in public or clergy yeah. dressed down so that they don't distinguish themselves from others in public, that they really blend into the Christian landscape here in this country. Right. And I really appreciate that. Not just the practical wisdom, but the biblical humility in that approach. Especially coming from the Middle East where... What hat you wear could mean a lot in right. terms of economic advantage or right. disadvantage. Uh-huh. So, yeah,
1: thanks I mean, be to God for His ministry. Yeah, thank God. And uh, you know, the church still has its complications with wealth, and with wealth is always complicated. Always complicated when it comes to religion, and this has been the case since Solomon. It's going to be this way until the eschaton that Malachi speaks of, and so that's something that's always a challenge. And when there's money and control, it, it makes things difficult. But I think that it's good that, you know, all the groups come together and, you know, try to stay under the same umbrella in order to work out their differences in this way. uh, Metropolitan Philip was a good father because he brought everyone together and let them just kind of battle it out as they needed to. Always and for everything, giving thanks to God, our Father, through the Lord
0: Jesus Christ in submission to one another. I think that really characterizes his pastoral leadership. Right. Anyways, thanks very much, Dr. Ben. right. Thank you, Father. Take care. Have a great week.